Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I know we just finished a 75 sermon series in Acts, but before we move on, I want to draw your attention to three Christ-honoring pursuits that are absolutely essential. Three important activities in life and ministry that if you do not engage well, you will neither make progress in the Christian life, nor will you make any traction in the lives of others. These are not a part of a buffet that... uh, has a lot of good options uh, should you decide to invest some time on the side, sort of like in a hobby. These are like air and water. These are bedrock basics. They are completely crucial to developing any kind of depth and growth um, in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. They are simply non-negotiable. They will make or break you in the Christian life. And today, we're going to see what God's Word says about these three Christ-honoring pursuits and how might we strengthen them in our, in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our ministries. And so, I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able. I'm going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You hear the Word of God, and I really want to give you a snapshot into my heart and soul and in my life and ministry and the heart of our leadership team and far more importantly, far more significantly, uh, immeasurably more really, a a look at God's purposes for his church, for his own glory and the good of his people. So Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us, and we thank you, Lord, that we have your word. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would have your way in our hearts today, Lord, that we would be fully yielded to whatever you desire to do. And we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Please be seated. I have come to the firm conviction over many years 
That's how you develop firm convictions. They develop over many years. That there are three Christ-honoring pursuits, or really pillars, pillars of the Christian life. And they are praying, preaching, and peopling. Praying, declaring dependence on God by speaking to God, and pleading with Him on behalf of everyone and everything. Preaching, giving the living and abiding Word of God, uh, giving the bread of, of life to poor, hungry, needy beggars, including ourselves. And peopling. I heard a little chuckle. I think I detected a snicker. I butchered the language to fit the pattern. Yes, I know. Go with me on it. It works. I'm actually in good company. Shakespeare did the same thing. He used it as a verb. And, and so did missionary Jim Elliott in the 1950s. So we're good. <laughs> Peopling. Loving, working with, interacting with people. Kind of the biblical idea of iron sharpening iron. Praying, preaching, and peopling. So take a look with me at Acts chapter 6. Set the context a little bit here. The early church has been thriving after Jesus commissions his witnesses to reach out in concentric circles where they are, start right where they are, and go to the uttermost ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles and they begin to go. They start in Jerusalem, right where they are. The church begins to go deep with God and with one another. They are committed to daily life with one another in Christ. They're committed to things like the apostles' teaching, word of God, fellowship, communion, and the prayers, plural, the prayers. As you go through the early chapters of Acts, you see a bit of persecution cropping up immediately, but God grows his church in spite of opposition. And the number of believers goes from 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to 5,000 when you get to chapter 4, verse 4, to probably 15 to 20,000 by the time you get to chapter 6. It's a large group. Verse 1 tells us, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. We're upwards to fifteen to 20,000 people now in Jerusalem who are brand new baby Christians. They've all got their brand new baby Christian diapers on. You go down to verse 7, you see that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So you've got fifteen to 20,000 some people that are professing faith in Christ and what you see is that they are unified. But something threatens their beautiful fellowship, their unified fellowship. A complaint arises. If we have any complainers in here, you know what you do. Well, a complaint arises and someone's upset, and as complainers do, they gather others around their cause. They find co-belligerence. It was the Hellenists versus the Hebrews this time, and it's in the church. 
The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews from the dispersion who had absorbed Greek culture into their lives and therefore seen with, uh, you know, as suspect by the Palestinian Jews, the Hebrews. So you've got the Hellenists versus the Hebrews, the Jews from Palestine, don't really look too kindly upon the, the Jews that are coming out of Greek culture. It's the foreigners versus the natives. And the problem is that the Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily serving of food. So all these people from from many lands were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Many of them became believers. And as the church goes out, there are many people coming to Christ, and many of them are not going back to, to their homelands. They're there, and they need to be fed, meeting a common need. It's a daily need, and they're serving food. And, and it's the non-Greek-speaking Jewish, uh, the Greek, excuse me, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows that are, are being overlooked, and word reaches the apostles because the complainers find a way to be heard. It's interesting to me that the complainers do not solve the problem. They don't just pick up some dishes and serve up some food. They want the apostles to fix it, and, and they do. Maybe they were respecting their leadership in the church. I don't know. Either way, the apostles teach the church a lesson as they meet this need, and the lesson is one of priorities and unity of purpose. Verse 4, they, they say, we will devote ourselves. Now, they had, they had given the answer to the problem. Verse 2, they summon everyone, the full number of disciples. So this is a big gathering. It's a congregational meeting here, and they're going to have a vote. And they say, it's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Serving tables was not a bad thing to do. In fact, the kind of people that they were to choose to serve the tables were also people who could preach. They say in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. They're qualified. They're godly. And we will appoint them to this duty. But verse 4, we, but we will devote ourselves. They were resolved. They were wholly given over to and yielded to, committed to a course of action. They said we will devote ourselves. That, that word devote comes from two words. One meaning to move towards something that is advantageous, that is, that is good. And the other is to be steadfast in it, to endure in it. The idea is they were attending constantly to praying, preaching, and peopling. They were wrapped up in it. They were consumed with it. They were focused on it, and it's a continual action. It's the idea of being a personal attendant at the beck and call of a master. In this case, they personally attended to prayer and preaching with people. Praying, they were devoted to pray. They they were declaring their dependency on God. They were pouring their hearts out to God what you do when you pray they were preaching they were, they were devoted to the ministry of the word they were wrapped up in it they were consumed with it they were focused on it they were continually attending to it verse 2 it's not right for us to give up preaching of the word 
to meet this need, even though this need is important, and even though we're going to get some really important people to do it, very gifted people to do it. They were not going to neglect their, their primary calling. And then peopling. This whole passage has to do with people. The whole Bible was, was written for, to people. God gave the word to people. But they say in verse 4, we, this is the apostles, because people matter and people are eternal and people need Jesus, they were preaching the word. Verse 5 tells us that what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose. Everyone was happy with what they said. This was right, this was good, this was appropriate. Now you can pray alone, you should pray alone. You should preach the gospel to yourself alone, in your own heart. You should do those. You will do those if you're redeemed. But you're not going to do these things solely alone because all of these things at some point necessitate people interaction. They prayed. The word continued to increase. Or seven the living and active word of God, the, the sword of the spirit that they were taking up, that God was directing, and the result, the number of disciples increased greatly. They're praying, they're preaching to people. And what I want to do is I want to ask and answer five questions today. First is, what inspires these pursuits? What inspires you to do this? And, and secondly, are they biblical? Are these things biblical? Are praying and preaching and people in biblical pursuits? Number three, are they for everyone? Are they for everyone? Number four, what keeps us from diving headfirst into them? And number five, how do we build them strongly into our lives? This is where we're going. So number one, number one, what inspires us to engage in praying, preaching, and peopling? The answer is simple. A relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ inspires these pursuits. The very bright and beautiful hope of the gospel is that lasting life change is really possible. That the finished work of Christ at the cross means that you can have a new life in Christ. And it's not just a restart of a life that was pretty good to begin with and just God just kind of enhanced it. But that he took a dead sinner and brought, it to li- brought a person to life, a regeneration, rebirth, new birth, and, and there's a transformation of life that has happened and it's in Christ. And the process of this change, what has happened that would then inspire such Christ-centered pursuits is God's transforming grace in your life has, has, has brought itself out, has worked its way out in some things that actually look like something real. Number one, there's a conviction of sin. You, you have realized, you've come to your senses You've become aware of your sinfulness and that you have offended God, a holy God. And you look into the revealing mirror of the word of God and you submit to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and you take responsibility for the fact that you know that you are guilty 
before a holy God and under his just wrath because of your sin. And there is, there is contrition, there is sorrow. You are sorry for your sin. You are broken over your sin. Many people don't realize their sin or experience brokenness. And unbroken people remain hard-hearted. There is confession of sin. There is admission. You, you admit, you agree with God that you have sinned, that your sin deserves death, and you freely confess your guilt and shame, and, and you receive forgiveness from Jesus. So what happens? There is a change direction in your life. There is, repentance has happened. You turn from your sins to Christ, and, and you want to change. You want there to be life change towards God, and, and you, you confess your sins, you repent of your sins, and you, you realize you have a changed life, you have a transformed life, you live differently, you experience true and lasting life change. This is what it means to be a believer. And you look to Jesus for direction in living, and God leads you to walk in newness of life, and Jesus helps you to adopt new habits and ways of living, and you have the joy of the Lord, and you rejoice. God's process of true change uh, is neither easy nor painless. Your life is reoriented. And it was costly. It was bought at the price of his son's precious shed blood. Christ's work of transforming grace in our hearts leads to true life change. But if you have a true knowledge of God, you'll have a truly changed life. And if you have no change in your life, there's probably no life. And if you have no knowledge of Christ, then you're dead in your sins. And you need Jesus. That's you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He died on the cross in your place, shedding his blood, paying the penalty that your sins deserved so that you could have peace with God, so that you could have a, a new changed life and and as a result, when you, get, when you get that gift of eternal life from God, there is an observable life change. And you engage wholeheartedly in worshiping God in all of your life via Christ-honoring pursuits. And this is where praying and preaching and peopling come in. Christ in you, this is really the big idea here today, Christ in you inspires you to engage wholeheartedly in praying and preaching and peopling for his glory. For his glory. You don't pray and preach and people for yourself and you don't do them in a vacuum. They are not means to an end. They are not self-directed activities that if you just do them, something's going to happen. They they flow from a deep abiding faith in Christ and deep reliance upon him. Praying and preaching and peopling flows from praise to God. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. You see a good example of this. Where out of praise for God's sovereign grace that saves us, flows a heart's resolve to pray and to preach and to engage deeply with people. Paul begins, we'll start at verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then Paul proceeds to pray. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He's praying for them to know God better. And then Paul proceeds to preach the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 13. Then Paul proceeds to pray again in chapters 3, 14 to 21. And then in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, he proceeds to talk to them about how a relationship with God flows into recognizable loving care for hearts and lives and souls of people. So when you love Jesus the most, and you love, then, then you love to talk to God. And, and you love to hear and give the word of God. And you want to help others in those same pursuits. Second question, are they biblical? Is praying, preaching people in the, in the Bible? And, and many of you are going to like, this is so obvious. Are you really going to do this? Well, I think that some people might be, might be wondering, might be unconvinced. Now think about it. Everything you accept into your life as essential and important and crucial, you must first test that thing. The litmus test of all things. Is it biblical? Is it worthy to be approved as a part of my life? Is it worthy to be pursued wholeheartedly and with reckless abandon? So these questions must be asked of praying and preaching and peopling. Are they in God's word? Praying. Let's just start with Jesus, shall we? Mark 1.35, Jesus rose early in the morning while still dark. He departs and goes out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 5.16, Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Luke 6.12, he spends a whole night in prayer. Luke 11, Jesus is praying. His disciples come to him and ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Can you please teach us to pray? Acts 2 tells us they devoted themselves to the prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Continual life of prayer. It's biblical. Let's talk about preaching, the ministry of the word. Psalm 19, you go to Psalm 19, it tells you all the amazing things the word of God does and, and how the word gives life and sustains life and transforms life and how it's powerful. Jeremiah 23, 29 talks about how the word of God is like fire and a hammer. Hebrews 4, 12 says it's a sword. Isaiah 55 says the word of God does not return void. It, 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 it succeeds in the matter for which God sends it. God honors his word. So Jesus in Matthew 4 says it is written. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You get into the book of Acts, in Acts 13, 48, the word was spread. It was, it was given out. Psalm, excuse me, uh, Acts 19, 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's biblical. And how about peopling? Well, I said it already, but the whole Bible was given to people, not Martians. Okay, people. A great example is, is Romans chapter 1. If you wonder where we're going in the preaching in the, in the coming months and weeks and years, we are going to get into Habakkuk in two weeks. And then after Easter, we're going to dive into Romans. But Romans 1, in verse 8, Paul begins, I, First, I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He's peopling. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mentioned you always in my prayers. I want to come to you. I want to be there. I want to see you. Verses 8 through 10, he's talking about prayer. And then verses 14 and 15, he's talking about preaching. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to both the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's not telling them that they're Greeks and barbarians or wise and foolish. He's saying, you're believers and I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel to you. And then peopling, verses 11 through 13, go back in there and he's talking about his relationships with them. I long to see you. I want to be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Praying, preaching, and peopling are simply not negotiable. They're biblical. And the reason why is Christ alone. Christ alone, the glorious sufficiency of Christ alone. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, tells us that Jesus Christ is first over all things. He's first in the church, he's first in the resurrection, he's first in everything. Hebrews tells us he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He led the way, he prayed, he earnestly prayed, he sweated blood in prayer. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, unashamed and unafraid, and he peopled. He loved us so much that he died for us. Matthew 9 tells us that he looked upon the multitudes and felt compassion for them. Sheep without a shepherd. Christ in you inspires you to engage wholeheartedly in praying and preaching and peopling for the glory of God. But the third question might be puzzling you. Are they really for everyone? Is it really true that I should be engaged in my life? That what, what, what you're saying, Mike, is that I should pray and preach and people as the overriding activities of my life? I'm a CPA. I'm a doctor. I'm a, I'm a mom. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a student. I'm... Are you sure? Is it really for everyone? Well, is air for everyone's lungs? Or just for certain special folks? See, everyone is called to love Jesus and share Jesus and love others. Everyone, every Christian. Wouldn't it have been weird when Jesus says, and it's recorded in Acts 1-8, when Jesus says, by the way, apostles, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you 
and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And wouldn't that have been weird and a relatively short mission if it was only for the apostles? Acts 6.4 talks about a priority activities of the apostles, but was it just for the apostles? No, every believer is to engage and inspire to aspire to such pursuits. Look with me back in Acts chapter 2. It's a description of the early church's life. I think we would get some, some good benefit out of seeing what the early church did, right? We would see some clues of maybe what they were really, really intent on. What kind of pursuits they were involved with. Verse 42. They devoted themselves, there's the word again, they devoted themselves, they were wholly given to, on a continual basis, to the apostles' teaching. That's the word of God. And fellowship, there's people. So you've got preaching and people, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And they're doing these things. I want to say to you today that you are just as much a servant of Christ as a pastor or a missionary. Sometimes we use these words and, and we just think, we stop short and say, well, it's not for me. But you are to be engaged in ministry everywhere you go. Yes, you've heard me say it before. You have keys and passcodes and permissions and welcomes and relationships and opportunity to go into places that other people don't get to go. And let's just take your, if you, if you work for, with a page, for a paycheck, they pay you to do your job well and to be yourself. You know, we don't self-identify here our identity is determined by Jesus. It's going to work its way out of you. Christ in you is your hope of glory, and you can't hide this. Why would you want to? Now, people get really hung up on the preaching thing. They're like, hey, I, I pray, I love people, but I'm not a preacher. We'll go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 4. I guess you could say that this sermon is like a, uh, an overview of Acts, you know, after we finish the book. It's kind of awesome, huh? Uh, Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What happened was there was this huge persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so the apostles are, are still at the home office, and now the whole rest of the church gets scattered out. All the believers, what do they do? They go about preaching the word. And there's two words for preaching here. By the way, there, here's the dispersed Christians. Doing good to depraved multitudes. They're declaring the gospel of deliverance through Jesus Christ. This is what every Christian should do. They're preaching, verse 4, that's the Greek word euangelizo, is where we get our word evangelism. And they also were proclaiming Christ, that's keruso, that's preaching publicly. The idea is they were doing this one-on-one -on -one and in groups, wherever they went, the outflow of their life. Romans 10 tells us that how will they believe if they never hear? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? And by the way, everyone preaches something. We just talk about proclaiming ideas. Everyone preaches something to their heart, uh, to their household, to their neighbors, their friends, their relatives, their enemies. You're preaching something. You want to preach Christ and Him crucified. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Why do I stand up here and preach the word of God? I preach and explain the word to you because I am called by God to shepherd the flock. And you are called by God to bring the word to hungry, needy beggars such as ourselves 
break the bread for them, show them, tell them, wherever God has placed you, whatever field he has given you. People desperately need to hear of Jesus Christ. You have keys, passcodes, invites, and welcomes into places I cannot gain access into. If I show up, they're like, who are you? I want to talk to my friends. But I preach to you so that you might preach to others. I preach here to equip and remind you to preach where you are, where you go, by the grace of God. Praying and preaching and peopling are for everyone of all ages and life stages. Question number four. Well, what keeps us from it? What keeps us from praying? I know what keeps me from praying. A big appetite for the world. A lust for relevancy. A, a desire to fit in. You know, why pray when you can play? Why stop to attend to God when you can get attention from someone who can help you get ahead in life and business and school and work or whatever hobby you dabble in or whatever idol you worship? What keeps us from preaching the gospel to ourselves and others? A small appetite for truth. You know the, the current fad of small bites where you go to a restaurant and they charge you more and give you less? It's awesome, right? But you feel good about it, right? A small appetite for truth. Small bites, but not too much. Wouldn't want to overdo it or get too spiritual to be of any earthly value. That's a lie. A small appetite for truth. The fat of small bites. Little bites of truth instead of large doses. We have somehow begun to think that we need snacks, not a full meal. Small bites. We need to get back into the word, in all its glory, in huge chunks. I'm talking about your daily life. Like, like why memorize a verse when you can memorize a chapter or a whole book? I think so many people have been lulled to sleep by the fancy, sweet trappings of the world that they do not want to deal in nutrients. They, don't, they want to be satisfied by their cravings and they wouldn't want to overdo it again and be too spiritual. We have a distaste for something that God says is good. An aversion for a delicious entree, a, a spiritual food. Many Christians like to say, I pride myself in not preaching at people. Well, I'm sorry your pride has gotten the best of you. I'm sorry that you think that biblical truth is bad. Would you be willing to repent of that? A lust for popularity. We, we want to be liked. We work so hard to be accepted and promoted. We think we can slip under the responsibility and say, well, I'm exempt. Christians are non-exempt. Don't swerve from the truth. What keeps us from wholeheartedly peopling no appetite for fellowship, real Christian fellowship. I'm really not convinced that the Hellenistic Jews had altruistic motives here. We care about these poor widows. Well, then why didn't you give them any food? Why weren't you serving the church so that they didn't have to have a big business meeting and the congregational vote? And we have a lust for privacy 
Because then we won't have to invest in risk or expose our sinful frailty. We can hide out and stay in the shadows and think we're safe, but we, you are never more vulnerable and open to attack of the enemy when, as when you are isolated. I mean, alone time with God is absolutely necessary. I must have lots of alone time with God to be any good with people, but too much absence from people is detrimental to your well-being in Christ. The things that Christians are to do are to be done in community. I think peopling might be our, our biggest issue. Many believers need to repent of secretly thinking that people are a necessary evil. That we are really better than other people. And that others have wrong motives, but ours are pure. We need to love people. The love of Christ. How do we build... Fifth question, last question. How do we build them strongly into our life? How, how does praying and preaching and peopling get built into your life strongly? I got some earth-shattering news for you today. I got some big news for you today. This is wild, okay? I just want to prepare you to hear this. Praying and preaching and peopling get built strongly into your life when you actually do them. And God does it through your willing yieldedness. Do you know how you mimic the accent you hear? Like if you grew up in Texas, you're not like, wow, I'd really like to have one of those accents. You got it. If you grew up on the East Coast, you're not like, man, I really wish I could get a Boston accent. If you grew up in Boston, you've got one. Because you mimic the accent you hear. And in like fashion, you mimic the spiritual accent that you operate in, the contagious Christianity in which you operate in, or the contagious sin in which you are around, or the contagious righteousness that you experience, or the contagious praying and preaching and peopling that you see. You want to build praying into your life, you've got to be devoted to it daily. You've got to pray as a lifestyle. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know this. We want to, but we don't. And we need God's help even to come to him in prayer. Walter Chantry wrote, in times of emergency, we wonder if we can pray. The reason for this was noted by the apostle Paul. Romans 8, 26. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We know what we want, but we are too unfamiliar with entering the courts of the king of glory and looking him in the eye and bringing to him our great requests. An urgent need of our time and place in history is for the spirit to help us in our weakness. We require the spirit interceding for us according to the will of God, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Do you know the father delights to give his children what they request according to his will? He does not listen to strangers. If any one of my kids comes up and says, can I borrow the car and they have a license? I will say yes. Sophie cannot drive. She does not get the car. <laughs> but if a stranger comes up to me and says, can I borrow your car? I will think once and twice and say no. Scottish reformer John Knox was often in such agony for his people in his country that he could not sleep. He passionately prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. 
Knox was such a man of prayer. Bloody Queen Mary said she feared his prayers more than all the armies of Europe. In his book on Stonewall Jackson, military biographer John Cook recounted this. A friend was talking to Stonewall Jackson about the difficulty of praying without ceasing. Jackson said, when we take our meals, there is a grace. When I take a drink of water, I always pause as my palate receives the refreshment to lift up my heart to God and thank him for the water of life. Whenever I drop a letter in the box at the post office, I send a petition along with it for God's blessing upon its mission and upon the person whom it was sent. When I break the seal of a letter I just received, I stop to pray to God that he might prepare me for its contents and make it a messenger of good. When I go to my classroom and wait for my cadets, this is my time to intercede with God for them. And so of every other familiar act of the day. A long time ago, I just decided that I was going to pray every time I heard my phone ring. Pray for the will of God. You don't know what's on the other end. Preaching. Claiming truth. Preaching Christ to ourselves and other believers and the world. Preaching in our heart. Preaching in our home. Preaching in the household of God. Preaching in any hemisphere that God leads us to. We all get very discouraged in our Christian life at times, and we think sometimes that God has a low opinion of us. Think that we need to have better good deeds in order to earn points with God, and that's where you need to preach the gospel to yourself. If you wrongly think that you have to perform well to be loved by God, that when your identity gets wrapped up in what you do rather than who you belong to as a believer, or your accomplishments or other, others' opinions of you, even how you're committed to praying and preaching and peopling, you need to go back to resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, on the cross, shedding his blood, and let that truth dive down deep into your life. You preach in your home, in your heart, in your neighbors, coworkers, teammates, fellow citizens, and you bring the word of God to bear on your little slice of the pie, wherever you live. Author Jerry Bridges reminds us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. He says this, Deep down in our souls, we must get hold of the wonderful truth that our spiritual failures do not affect God's love for us one iota. That his love for us does not fluctuate according to our experience. We must be gripped by the truth that we are accepted by God and loved by God for the sole reason that we are united to his beloved son. See, preaching to yourself is reminding yourself of the truth. And when the truth gets settled into your life, you are free to preach to others. Peopling, loving people with the love of Jesus. You know, blessed are the merciful. Frustrating are the difficult people. You need perseverance and patience and forbearance, and we are all in, we are all, we are all difficult people in need of mercy. Every one of us. I don't know if you ever realized that, but it's easy to go, well, that person is so difficult. And not realizing that we are all difficult people in need of mercy and forbearance. An American evangelist was in Scotland once and he gave a, a sermon of exceptional power and he was approached by the Scottish preacher Horatius Bonner and he, he, Bonner says, do you love to preach? And the American evangelist says, I, yes I do. And Dr. Bonner asked this searching question, do you love people as much as you love to preach? Alex Montoya has said this so many times over the years. It's one thing to love to preach. It's another to love those to whom you preach. See, if you do not love the people that you are preaching to, your preaching will fall on deaf ears. 
Love people even if they hate you because you are going to go through things for Christ when you identify. You'll be hated and persecuted, mistreated, and we ought not to wish that the world would treat us better than it treated Christ. We are salt and light, praying, preaching, and peopling. Soul's declaration of dependence on God, prayer. We look to Jesus as we pray. We preach to communicate God's message through, 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 through us. We say, be yourself and preach the word wherever you go. And love people with the love of Jesus. They need to hear and experience the truth firsthand. You've got to show them and tell them. And by the way, you can simultaneously pray, preach, and people. That's what I do every time I'm up here. I'm praying, I'm preaching, and I love you. I'm looking at you. I, I know most of you, and I, and I know you, and, I, and I, it's, it is a, this is a relational thing, preaching. Evangelist D.L. Moody was crossing the Atlantic once when a fire broke out in the hold of the ship, and the crew and some volunteers stood in line, and they're passing buckets of water. And a friend says to Moody, Mr. Moody, let's go to the other end of the ship and pray. And Moody says, no, we're going to stand right here and pass buckets and pray hard the whole time. What's more important, prayer, preaching, or peopling? Well, I don't know. If you're seated on a three-legged stool, which leg is more important? As I heard Pastor H.B. Charles say this week um, regarding prayer and the word, if you're, if you're 30,000 feet up in the air flying in a plane, which, which wing is more important? 1 Corinthians 15, 58, so be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Devote yourself to pray and to preach the gospel and to love people in Christ's strength and for his glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work and your witnesses for your purposes and your purposes are to glorify yourself and through our lives. And that you have chosen and called us and regenerated us. And we pray that you would allow us to do the simple things so you get the glory wherever we find ourselves. Lord, may we not seek greater fields, but work in the fields you've given us. Lord, I pray that with thanksgiving that you have given, put in your glory in clay pots. Glorious deposit of the gospel housed in utter frailty and weakness. It's like you put all the gold of Fort Knox into paper bags like you've put homeless beggars into mansions and given them title deeds. And Lord, we know our lives are messy and fragile and faithless and faulty, and we are still seated with you in the heavenlies, simultaneously slugging it out here on earth, filled with multitudes who are lost and lonely and leaning on many things to prop themselves up. So Lord, I pray with thankfulness that you, you allow us, we get to pray to you and to preach your glorious truth, and to do so with people who are just like us. Lord, use us for your glory, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.